This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How many doses are we getting and when are we getting them? Now, those seem like simple questions when it comes to vaccines, but here in Canada, as we are learning, the answer is anything but simple. Eric Sorensen is covering this story for Global News this morning, so we reached out to him for the latest. Eric, thanks for joining us to talk about this this morning. This is such a hot topic for so many Canadians. What is going on with all these vaccine delays here in Canada? Well, it came about because uh, Pfizer decided it needed to retool some of its production facilities in Belgium. And as a result, it meant that Canada, among some others, were not going to get uh, as many vaccines as they had been promised during a period of time which is starting like this week and going on for another couple of weeks at least into February. So we're getting zero vaccines from Pfizer this week, and it'll be in the tens of thousands next week and for a couple of weeks until it returns to what was originally planned, more than 300,000 per week that was then being distributed to provinces across Canada. So Canada is going to receive fewer vaccines from, from Pfizer during this period. The question is, can they still meet that 4 million target by the end of March? And Ottawa has suggested that that will still happen. Really? So they're still feeling confident about that, even though it seems like we're getting nothing but bad news when it comes to deliveries here? Well, part of it is that, 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 that Pfizer is suggesting you can now get six doses out of every vial instead of five. Canada would have to get the syringes. They have some, but not, not a lot. But the particular syringes where there's no waste from the, from the vaccine vial, that hasn't been approved by Health Canada yet. Other countries have approved it. If that were to happen, you can imagine then that you could really up the, uh, the number of, of vaccines for, uh, for Canadians. They're, you know, four million vaccines translates into 800,000 vials. If you can get an, an extra dose out of every single vial, that's 800,000 more vaccines, and that would make up for the shortfall that is expected right now. That, that confusion was caused by a, a planning document, Ottawa says it put out, that, that, that downgraded the number of vaccines coming from Pfizer from 4 million to 3.5, but then afterwards they scrambled to say, no, we're going to get 4 million. Either we get it under the current contract that Pfizer will up its, its number after this cutback, or, uh, or that we get the approval for, uh, for the dosage to be changed right. from each vial, and we'll get the $4 million that way. Okay, so then what is the deal with the syringes then? Well, you'd have to get those syringes. You'd have to have enough of them across the country. I know that some provinces don't have them, and so, uh, but at the same time, you can imagine if you can build a better mousetrap, everybody would want that. Who, yeah. You know, the whole world is, is wanting all this vaccine. You don't want to see 15% of it go to waste if you can get six doses instead of five out of each vial. So I think we're moving in that direction. It just isn't something that I guess everybody had anticipated. There's always been this kind of a, a, allowing for a little bit of extra wastage uh, out of each syringe when you, when you pull that out of a vaccine vial. But the recognition now is that, look, we should try and get every drop right. uh, and make use of it because the world is going to be clamoring for vaccines for, for months and months to come. Now, Eric, is Canada the only country that is facing this situation? Are we alone in this? Are there others in the same boat? 
No, I don't, I don't think we are. I mean, other countries have approved uh, switching to uh, going to six six uh, doses per vial. They all obviously everybody has to retool a little bit in terms of the syringes for this particular vaccine. Um, Canada's situation is lagging a little bit right now in terms of vaccines per capita. Some countries have passed by the Canadians, uh, given that we're getting zero vaccines from Pfizer right now. But some of those countries are getting them from other outlets, like Serbia has now apparently doing a little better than Canada, but they get their vaccines from China. Canada has bet on Pfizer, it's bet on Moderna, and on Johnson & Johnson, and on AstraZeneca. Well, these are pretty good horses to have in the race. And so where there might be numbers that are low now, Ottawa is counting on not just making 4 million by uh, by the end of March. They are insisting that if you look at the long game, it will really ramp up in uh, April to June, that in the second quarter, we can hit 20 million doses. And the issue then won't be getting enough vaccine. It will be, you know, the, the ability to distribute it and get it, you know, get jabs into arms and get that done. So I expect we're going to see you know, new kinds of centers have to be set up across Canada if we really start to get the flood of vaccines that Canada has contracted for. All right, Eric, thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. That is Global News reporter Eric Sorensen covering the story this morning of the uncertainty over vaccine delivery to Canada. And so much of it does stem, I guess, on Pfizer's point of view. That is, how many doses can you get out of the actual little vial that they're delivering? So are we getting them by the dose or are we getting them by the vial? Because that would change the numbers too. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there's this general perception out there that Canada, and I would say BC in particular, has done a decent job, right? Pretty good job of responding to the pandemic. And I certainly know that I talk to people here in BC who feel like, well, you know, we're luckier here in BC, more things are open, we're managing it better. And, you know, it was easy to say that when you were comparing it to places like where they were having big problems, for instance, in the United States. But there's a new global ranking of COVID responses by country. And boy, has it ever been a wake-up call to take a look at that. Uh, Joining us now for more on this is Scott Gilmore, the editor-at-large for Maclean's Magazine. He's written a piece that outlines why Canada landed so far down the list here. Scott, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Cindy. So where were we on this list? Below El Salvador, below Belarus, below uh, Myanmar, we were ranked 61st out of 98 countries. And it really, you know, as you say, it's all about context. Compared to the United States, we think we're doing fairly well. But when you look at the broader uh, context of of around the globe for a global pandemic, that's not the case. All right. So where did we fall down? Like, where, where are those misperceptions coming from? Well, you know, we, we are... Uh, looking very much at local responses. So you're right, British Columbia compared to Alberta is doing much better. But when you step back and you take a look at the, the rate of, of uh, the virus spread, when you look at the, the death counts, um, it all adds up. And it doesn't look good in the, in the broader context. Are there, when you looked at this and put it into context, then like, what is it that we're not doing that these other countries that ranked ahead of us are doing? I think that you you can very easily come to the conclusion that we didn't lock down fast enough. So take countries like Australia. They actually shut their borders, not just to incoming foreign travel, but even Australians who were overseas at the time, back in March of 2020, um, they weren't allowed back across the border. Whereas in Canada, we kept our border open. We said we closed it, 
But really, you, you can still go to uh, Vancouver International or Pearson in Toronto, and it's filled with people and going back and forth across the border. We also did the same thing with between our provinces. Australia, again, they shut down the traffic between its different states, whereas right now you can quite easily drive from Edmonton to Vancouver and bring the virus with you. Right. And when you look at what's going on in Australia, they their life looks pretty close to being back to normal there, doesn't it? In fact, today they announced that they're lifting most of the restrictions in Australia. They're, they're back to where we used to be a year ago. Interesting. And so is it, do you think people, will the government look at this and say, we need to do better? It just seems like they have been reluctant to really crack down. What has been the difference here? Is it because it's province by province? Well, it's partly because in Canada, we have taken healthcare and made it a provincial responsibility. And so each province has used different approaches. And the federal government has been quite happy to do that because this is a very difficult complicated crisis to deal with and they're quite happy to have someone else deal with it but ultimately you have to put the lay the blame at the feet of the premiers and the, and the prime minister and they see these numbers just as, uh, as well as we see them they have to recognize that something has to be done and right now what the federal government is considering is more restrictions at the border which sounds good except for the fact that when you take a look at the numbers those that cross-border travel particularly from the united states accounts for less than one percent of the infections now. The horses left the barn. It's all community uh, spread right now. Right, which is exactly what they had been warned about, though, for a very long time. Well, not just that. They were told right from the very beginning, like as far back as January, February last year, that the way to contain a pandemic like this is to put in very effective track and trace mechanisms. So you put people out there in the community who are finding out, you know, if, if somebody's sick, who have they been in contact with in the last 14 days? And then who have those people been in contact with? And we really did very, very little of that, which is amazing when you consider that we've had this massive spike in unemployment. The government could have been hiring some of these people. Like crazy, yeah. do exactly that. But uh, no creativity, no willingness to get involved. Everybody wanted some other level of government to do it. And here we are. Okay, so we talk about comparing ourselves to the United States, Scott. Where did they end up on this list? Well, in terms of the... Um, performance to date, they're actually lower than we are. But if you take a look at performance right now, particularly in terms of the uh, vaccination rates, they're well ahead of us. In fact, right now, the, the Americans have vaccinated over five times as many people per capita than Canada has. And it looks like even those numbers are exaggerated in our favor because, Aust- because Ontario, amazingly and incompetently, has been double counting vaccinations here for the last uh, month. I'm sorry, what? So, I know. Exactly. I don't know. When you would think the premier wakes up in the morning, the one number he wants to know is how many people got vaccinated today. How do you manage to get that wrong by 100 percent? I don't know. I don't know either. So even the rate that we were holding up is incorrect, is what you're saying. Yeah, we're going to we're going to fall in those rankings. Okay, so with the, when it comes to the vaccine delivery, then there's a lot. I, I feel like there's been more criticism of the federal government on that front than there was or has been on the pandemic response, wouldn't you say? There has been, and I think that's unfair only in the sense that premiers deserve a lot of criticism as well. So the, the premiers are very, very good at actually blaming the prime minister. The prime minister hasn't been quite as good at blaming the premiers. But the prime minister and his team were slow at getting the vaccines into Canada, but the premiers themselves have been slow in distributing those vaccines once they've had them. And so in most cases, the provinces have 
vaccines is a surplus right now. They haven't even been able to get them into arms yet. And yet they're, they're complaining that they don't have enough vaccines, which doesn't make sense. So where does this perception come from, Scott, that we that so many Canadians seem to have that, you know, what, we're doing OK in this country? I think it comes from the fact that if you look at how Canada has been doing over the last 20 or 30 years, we have been doing OK. You know, the, I've written in the past that, for example, the American dream has effectively moved to Canada. You're more likely to get uh, a, a college education here. You're more likely to own a home. You're more likely to have uh, vacations. And in, across most rankings of the last 20 years, our quality of life, our health care, everything has put us near the top uh, around the world. And so I think we just assumed, you know, we live in nice neighborhoods. We live in a nice country. Surely we're doing a nice job at, at, at COVID, but we are not. And that's a worry. Yeah, that is a worry. Uh, Scott, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Simi. Scott Gilmore is the McLean's Magazine editor-at-large. Check out the piece that he has written on this on their website, and you will see he's written a piece outlining why Canada landed so far down the list on this global ranking of COVID responses. We are in the 60s out of something like 90-some countries that they surveyed, so it doesn't look good at all. And you know, the tougher measures really seem to be what makes the difference. We were talking about Australia there. They they even limited uh, if there was a province that they had or a state in Australia where it was problematic, they shut everything down like regionally in that state. No travel in and out of that state. Um, you know, no traveling, just completely shut it down. And it's, it has worked for them. You know, even that's been one of the frustrations I've had here in BC that even regionally we haven't shut things down when we know we have a problem. Look at Whistler. They've had more cases of COVID-19 in the month of January than they had in all of 2020 because they've, you know, been socializing. We spoke to the mayor yesterday. They've got a problem with people socializing. It's not, they're not getting it at the ski lifts or when they're skiing. They're getting it when the skiing is done for the day and then people are hanging out and socializing. And so, yeah, we still haven't learned the lesson of finding these hot spots, jumping on them and, you know, shutting everything down in those hot spots until we can get those numbers under control. We're still treating it as a, you know, broader province-wide situation on that. This is Mornings with Simi. So we heard yesterday from Finance Minister Krista Freeland, she was on the show with us, that they're starting this process of consultations to get an idea of what Canadians are looking for, or the priorities that we feel there should be in the federal budget, which should be tabled at some point this spring. We don't actually have a date on that. But she was very specific in saying that that's what she was doing with British Columbians. In fact, yesterday, she was going to be speaking with the Surrey Board of Trade and other groups about their thoughts on this. So we thought, let's find out what the discussion was all about. Joining us now is Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Hi, Anita. Good morning. Let's talk about the discussion then. So tell me, what kind of points did the Board of Trade want to make with the finance minister yesterday? Well, we uh, knew that this was uh, a very different federal budget consultation every year. We uh, put in uh, our thoughts in terms of uh, what Surrey, uh, BC, Canada needs. Uh, but this time it's very different, especially we're still in this pandemic. Uh, small businesses especially are still hurting. And uh, we had a very um, exclusive opportunity. There was uh, 10 of us. Uh, from the Surrey Board of Trade and the South Asian Business Association because we wanted to know what South Asian businesses were also facing. Uh, about 17 issues came up, 
And, um, you know, number one was related to um, infrastructure development, creating jobs. We know in Surrey, uh, the construction and development sector has really somewhat saved us. Uh, You know, it's still booming, still creating good quality jobs. They were still able to operate even during the pandemic, um, especially through those March to uh, June months. Uh, the other issues that came up, of course, uh, was child care, right. uh, full labor participation, uh, youth uh, was indicated, especially by the South Asian Businesses Association, as being, you know, that element of our population that has been left behind, that needs to be focused on uh, in terms of uh, career, in terms of entrepreneurial opportunities. Um, I also did bring up the fact about tax reform, lessening the burden on businesses. Uh, The government of Canada needs to ensure they have a comprehensive review of all of their taxes. What makes sense? What doesn't? And make sure that we're competitive and productive. And the Deputy Prime Minister said that she is focused on, as she said on your show yesterday morning, growth, 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 jobs, jobs, jobs. And uh, and certainly, uh, you know, we heard from the fitness sector uh, on uh, the Zoom call yesterday, and uh, they said, you know, we still need, uh, you know, to focus on the fitness industry. It's a measure of economic recovery. We need to focus uh, on uh, universal pharmacare. Uh, everyone has access to uh, prescription drugs. And uh, and that's something else that right. we've been working on. Uh, certainly a wide variety of issues, Cindy. Yeah, it sounds like it. Did you get a sense then that there will be some of those uh, kinds of policies that perhaps we have been waiting for for a long time, like national child care or a national you know, drug prescription plan? Did you get the sense that this is the time the government is considering making those big changes? Well, I I remain optimistic. You just really never know. There's so many competing um, priorities. And I don't envy Christian Freeland's uh, uh, scope in terms of what she has to do. I mean, it is her job, and she has to take care of Canadians uh, with the Prime Minister, including the business community. Uh, but certainly, you know, for us, there are 17 issues, and uh, and that ranges also uh, throughout the country. But uh, I think there's going to be some movement towards childcare, some movement in pharmacare, some movement around infrastructure uh, development. Uh, the SkyTrain uh, was uh, a top priority for many on the call yesterday, mm-hmm. extending that all the way to Langley. And um, and some even said, you know, maybe put a SkyTrain line on King George Boulevard, uh, being a connector to South Surrey. But that requires a lot of planning on the back end. Christia Freeland, she did say she wants to fund shovel-ready projects. She wants to create jobs now. She wants to ensure that they're moving towards debt reduction. What was the what, the impression that you got then on the SkyTrain situation? Because that's an announcement, I think, uh, lots of politicians in Metro Vancouver are waiting to hear about. Will the federal government pitch in for that? 
Well, all she said is, uh, I mean, there was uh, eight out of ten of the participants that said we want SkyTrain to Langley. And uh, she said, well, I heard it loud and clear. And uh, some of our local MPs were on the call, too. Uh, Ken Hardy, Randeep Sarai, and Sue Dhaliwal. Um, so she hears it, you know, from all angles. So, But she never committed to anything yesterday. Uh, she was simply engaging asking questions, and uh, that was a really unique opportunity that we had um, for the first time ever with a finance minister. Well, really, I was going to ask you about that then. So you could clearly tell this was different. That's never, that hasn't happened before? Well, I mean, we always have uh, events, uh, speaker events with a finance minister uh, for Canada, um, but it's a, a grandiose event, you know, with three, 400 people. Uh, but this time in her office and herself, they wanted to keep it uh, with 10 people. Uh, diverse industries, uh, diverse backgrounds. And, uh, you know, this back and forth that we've had with uh, this finance minister has been uh, a very, uh, very interesting and, and very different. Hmm. Um, one thing I just wanted to mention that I, I did say to Minister Freeland is, you know, we had 500 families in Surrey, for example, just before Christmas that were waiting in line at the food bank. Yeah, And uh, that matters to the business community, too. I mean, these are people, you know, that had jobs. They had no idea that they would lose their jobs. And and that was just heartbreaking, you know, for me, you know, to see it and hear it just before Christmas. So she's aware of that, that this has to be um, a budget that doesn't leave people behind. Uh, and, uh, and she knows how diverse, multicultural, family-oriented, small business-oriented Surrey is. And we were very passionate about Surrey. She heard that, too. All right. Well, Anita, thanks very much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you, Simi. Anita Haberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, on consultations between local groups and the federal finance minister on the upcoming spring budget. And speaking of the economy, uh, Statistics Canada this morning out with their financial outlook from November. And it says that the economy actually gained in September, in November, I should say. Canada's GDP grew by 0.7% in November. That actually topped expectations. The seventh straight month of gains, even though we had those cliff-like drop-offs in March and April. And they're also saying their preliminary estimate at this point for December is showing growth of 0.3%. Now, that's even though we had increasing lockdowns and things changing in the month of December as we kind of got into that deep into the second wave there. Uh, So interesting news out about the economy this morning. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There's a lot of concern coming from Avalanche Canada this weekend. They've issued a warning about snow conditions, and that includes the North Shore Mountains. So we wanted to give you some advice if you were thinking about heading out to take a hike or perhaps go snowshoeing. Joining us now is Mike Danks, the uh, North Shore Rescue Team leader. Mike, thanks for being here. 
Yeah, you bet. I appreciate you having us on the show. Yeah, what have you been seeing out there? What What are the conditions like out in the mountains right now? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely concerning. Um, I was out yesterday, and, and there's signs of avalanches that are happening. Um, and there's a ton of people that are getting out into those areas, and it just really... Um, emphasizes the need for people to understand the terrain that they're getting into and what uh, the potential risks are. Like right now, I think people look around, they look down here, it looks perfectly fine, but it's serious winter up there. No, it really is. And I think, you know, the call that we had on Tuesday night really highlighted that is we had a single snowboarder that went out of bounds and got involved in a size two avalanche. And um, was very badly injured and is very lucky to be alive. And I think it's important for people to understand, you know, these warnings aren't for the experienced um, backcountry enthusiasts. These are really targeted at the novices that are naive to the dangers. And I really encourage people, you know, if you don't have any uh, backcountry knowledge, to vi- visit the Avalanche um, Canada website and go through it. There's a ton of learning material there, and there's some very specific um, information about the conditions and the snowpack um, here on the North Shore Mountains and throughout the province. What is making the current conditions so dangerous right now? I think what the challenge we have now is um, there's a widespread weak layer. It's 40 to 60 centimeters down. It's reactive on all aspects. Um, and they are forecasting that the conditions are going to get worse throughout the weekend. So as we see more people going into the backcountry, these conditions are getting worse. All right. So tell us that website again then, Mike, that people should go to to get more information. Avalanche.ca. Keeps it simple, right? Um, Yeah, totally. (laughs) You would hope. One would hope. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you bet. Take care. And best of luck. That is Mike Danks. He is the uh, North Shore Rescue Team Leader. You see him on the news all the time, mainly rescuing people who, in some cases, are not taking proper precautions. So check out avalanche.ca. But be careful. There's a lot of concern about the conditions right now on the local mountains. Uh, Do not head out of bounds. Just be careful. Watch yourself. Because you know what? I think Mike would every once in a while like to have a quiet weekend and not have to uh, get the call out to go and save somebody. This is Mornings with Simi. So universal basic income, it may not be the silver bullet for inequality that many advocates believe it is. That is the finding from a comprehensive report that was released yesterday. And it also uh, gave us a series of recommendations on how to fix or address some of those inequality issues. Joining us now is Dr. David Green, professor at the Vancouver School of Economics at UBC. He was the chair of the panel that put this report together. Dr. Green, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, I know the universal basic income issue is getting a lot of attention today. So tell me, why is it not that magic silver bullet? Well, effectively, what we found really, what we concluded, and like you said, it was we were at this for two years. There's lots of research behind it and a lot of consultation. Uh, our conclusion really was it's not the most effective tool for reaching the kinds of goals that you were talking about. And for virtually every specific goal that we could think of, what, what one would, would do for people um, facing poverty who, who uh, have unstable work conditions, et cetera, it, it was not the, the most effective way to do it. And in fact, it was often the, the most costly way to do it. 
even one of the big advantages, and I think one of the things that really attracts people to basic income is its simplicity. The idea that we address these problems by just sending people a check uh, through the tax system. And what we did was we tried to sit down and actually design a system that would be implemented in BC. And our conclusion was it would, it just wouldn't be that simple. In fact, you needed a whole set of systems around it to actually make it happen. Interesting. So it was more work than it was worth for the, for what the uh, benefit would have been. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, And that was true for almost every goal that we considered. I think, Often when people are considering, you know, when the, when the discussion happens in general and the people in Silicon Valley say this is a great tool, I think a lot of times what people are thinking is, is the most basic notion of a basic income, which is we send everybody a check, uh, ev- literally everybody a check, every adult a check for at the poverty line, say at $20,000, roughly speaking, for B.C., and that would cost $52 billion in B.C. That's a rough doubling of the B.C. budget. And so that takes those forms right off the table. But even even forms that are less costly, in, in our mind, are just less effective mm-hmm. unless you build whole support systems around them. Okay, so then what were the recommendations that you made to actually address the issues? Yeah, so there's a whole set of them. I, I should say that we do think that a basic income is useful in particularly targeted in, in sort of particular situations. So, for example, we're recommending three targeted basic incomes, one for people living with disabilities, uh, one for youth aging out of foster, uh, out of foster care, um, and one for women and children fleeing domestic violence. And in each case, that would be paired with a system that uh, supports them in other ways. So, for example, for the youth aging out of care, which is a, an area of real concern, there's only about 800 or 1,000 youth aging out of care each each uh, year in BC, but but they face huge problems and and are big, uh, you know, users of many systems. But what we're talking about is both giving them a basic income, but also uh, using providing resources for community organizations that they would take part in to create a safe home base for them, a real base of support. And and essentially our argument is that true autonomy, which is what basic income people uh, proponents are looking for, is more than just money. It, it comes with community and other supports. Right. That It seems like, Dr. Green, we've heard variations of this, right, for a long time, is it spend a little money up front to spend less money in the long run. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and there are sort of more. The other thing is we, we argue that basic, what are sometimes called basic services um, are more directly effective than giving money to people and hoping that they can find the right market. So, for example, one of the things that we're recommending is that there be a health, uh, health supplements that are there for all low-income people. Right now, right. if you're on income assistance, you can get dental benefits. But leaving it, you lose your dental, you lose your dental benefits. And we're recommending a system like Fair Pharmacare, where people would have access to, to dental benefits, uh, to dental services if they're low income. And, and as you said, that's a, that's a real situation of spend a little upfront. You do better later on. Right now, what happens for the working poor is they can't afford to go to the dentist until they need surgery. And then right. once they need surgery, now they're in MSP and it's paid for. But that's you know, false economy. Right. Got to create that incentive, though, for them to progress from the from getting the help right from the government. You got to help them have those supports kind of midway through. Yeah. And a lot of what we're a lot of the recommendations in our report are are based not on not on like a sort of punitive requirement to work, but on doing everything we can to to make the circumstances there for people to work. Because we we really believe, you know, most people 
the vast majority of people, they want to contribute, they want to work. But if you're on income assistance and your options are, you know, unstable, crappy jobs and losing your dental benefits, you know, that's a, that's a hard decision for anyone to make. That's like any one of us suddenly facing a hundred percent tax rate. And most of us would say, am I really going to earn that extra dollar if it's all going to evaporate in front of me? So true. We're trying to create ways that make it possible, you know, much more possible for, for people to make that step. So true. All right, Dr. Green, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was really interesting. Dr. David Green, a professor at the Vancouver School of Economics at UBC, chair of the panel that put together this report looking into universal basic income. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, remember last spring when we heard that, you know, TransLink was in some real financial trouble and as a result, executives were going to take a 10% pay cut right across the board? Yeah, hold that thought. Joining us now is Chris Sims, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Good morning, Chris. Morning. What have you found out about this pay cut? Well, we filed some uh, freedom of information request documents and turns out it was rescinded, reversed. Uh, the only thing we're wondering about is how quickly it was reversed. Like you, I was uh, a little bit impressed, actually, when I saw the 10% pay cut because we were all in this together. I know most of us have taken salary reductions because of COVID. And so I was curious as to how much it was. So I filed a whole bunch of documents and got them back a little while ago. Turns out, yeah, there was a pay cut, but it was rescinded. So they never actually got the pay cut. They never actually took the pay cut. No, exactly. So while at the same time they used emergency funding, for example, to not, you know, massively lay off bus drivers, which we totally understand, they actually also used the money to bring their gold-plated salaries for executives right back up to snuff at the same time. But they didn't announce that. I didn't catch that part in the news release. I don't remember hearing about that either. I know no. that you're right. I know there was a lot of relief that, okay, great. They're not going to be laying off bus drivers, frontline workers, sure. you know, the average Joes who are working hard. Uh, but that part, you're right, got missed. So they also rescinded their uh, pay cuts. So does that mean that they actually made more money in yes. 2020? He's one, the CEO of TransLink, uh, I don't know about you, but I think he's one of the few people uh, who actually made more money and is making more money now than he was in 2019. So, for example, the CEO in 2019, as of December, was paid $445,000, and now he's being paid $448,000. So he's actually being paid more now post-COVID. <laughs> I think I think a lot of people, Chris, would be disappointed by this because, you know, years past, we we yeah, we used to beat up on TransLink all the time, rightfully so. They had all sorts of issues, but it feels like the last couple of years we hadn't there wasn't as much reason to do that. It felt like they had gotten themselves back on track. Well, they're paid an awful lot of money, four hundred and forty eight thousand dollars per year. So the head of a regional transit board for one province is paid more than the prime minister of a G7 country. Paid more than the premier, like paid more than the premier and the minister combined. Like, that's a lot of money. And we need to keep in mind, this isn't some private corporation, like who cares where they get their money. This is 100% taxpayer and ratepayer and transit user money. Right. And they're currently looking for a new CEO, are they not? Bingo. So Mr. Desmond is leaving. He's moving back to the United States. I will also point out he's moving after TransLink had voted him in as one of the uh, highest brackets for transit pay. Uh, We did some research last year. Uh, He was right up there with like the New York City transit boss. New York, Boston, Chicago, Montreal. 
like Vancouver doesn't compare as far as the transit systems and the populations go to those cities, but he was right up there for the pay uh, bracket. And so now he's moving back to the States. And so we're asking TransLink, hey, when you guys are putting out your little LinkedIn and your job search posting, could you please just tamp down the salary a bit? Let's, for starters, make it less than the Prime Minister of Canada. Yeah, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of questions about this one today. Chris, thank you for your time. Thank you. Take care. You too. Chris Sims is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. When I saw this one this morning, I thought, oh boy, I have a lot of feeling that people are going to want to talk about this one. And that is that that pay cut that TransLink said that executives were going to be taking last year didn't actually happen when they received emergency support money from the different levels of government. Not only did they use that to great, make sure they didn't lay off any bus drivers and other you know workers that they said they were going to have to, but they also used it to rescind the 10% pay cut to senior executives that they said they were going to be taking. And so that means that in the case of you know the CEO, they actually made more money last year than the year before. I feel a lot of people aren't going to be happy about that. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you're a renter in Vancouver, you may be finding yourselves in a situation that you haven't seen before, at least not for quite a few years. Anyway, it's the idea of choice, maybe some lower rent and incentives. I know you're going, what are incentives? Well, joining us now is Frances Bula, Globe and Mail writer, of course, local journalist to talk about her latest piece in the Globe and Mail. Hi, Frances. Hi. I love this piece because it just seemed like this is a whole new world for renters out there, right? Oh, yeah. It was really fun talking to this young woman um, because, you know, her whole life, it's just been get what you can, you know, like suck up to potential landlords to show how great you are, um, you know, all the rest of it. And now she's sort of feeling like, oh, I have some choices. And she was telling me in Toronto, um, there are also, you know, it's the same pattern that um, especially in the central city rents or, you know, there's a lot of places that are vacant. And a, a girlfriend of hers was looking at an apartment listed at 2700 And um, she said to the landlord, well, we'll think about it. We're going to look at some other places. And he said, oh, well, how about 2200 <laughs> What? Yeah. Just like that. I know, I know. So, uh, you know, and I've seen some places around where I live where they've been for rent for more than a month. And I started thinking, well, maybe people should just go to the landlord and offer something and right. see what happens. But you know what? We're um, so, as you pointed out, we're so trained not to do that, right? But incentives. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I remember three years ago, uh, you know, up to two or three years ago, it was uh, people lining up, yeah. and, you know, begging people and offering to pay a bit more and doing all kinds of strange things to get the apartment in the area they wanted. So what kind of incentives are we talking about here? What are landlords getting into? Well, so I talked to a couple of women who are involved in a company called Live Rent, and that's primarily where I was hearing this particular, you know, um, set uh, or, you know, these particular circumstances. But they were saying uh, one thing that landlords are doing is they're loosening up on the no pets rule, you know, particularly because during the pandemic, so many people have acquired cats and dogs. Um, There's now a bigger population of renters with pets. And um, so they're loosening up on that. Um, 
They are offering free parking in the building if there was a charge for it before. They're offering the first month's rent free. They're offering a discount on the first four months of rent. Um, It was interesting, though, that they pointed out that um, it's the bigger companies that are doing this, like smaller landlords are, you know, they're not as experienced. They don't know how to write up a rental agreement um, to, you know, have discounts that, you know, end at a certain point and so on. Uh, so they said it's it's larger companies that are generally making these kinds of moves. And I, I've noticed it in Vancouver at Shannon Muse, um, the Peter Wall development right. on, at Granville and 57th. You know, they're announcing, you know, rent discounts there. Oh, do you think there's more movement as well? Like, do you think this is making people who maybe their lease is up thinking, you know what, I'm going to move because I want to take advantage of some of well, this stuff? Well, no. <laughs> because... Uh, it still shows in the CMHC stats that came out yesterday that uh, anyone who moves uh, is likely to pay 21% more in rent because there's a lot of rents that are still lower than market. And so the minute the person moves out of that $900 a month, one bedroom uh, in Mount Pleasant, um, the uh, owner knows that they can still get more than that for it, even in this climate. So um, it actually shows that the amount of moving around is lower um, on on average. Like I think some people maybe are moving, like they're looking around for better deals. But on the whole, people who have to move for one reason or another, they end up paying higher rent. Uh, Okay, so so that's discouraging for them. It is discouraging because like overall, though, the rents do remain still on the high side, don't they? Oh, yeah. I I mean, you know, we can't kid ourselves that this means that they're back down to 1976 levels or anything (laughs) like that. They're still very high, um, among the highest in the country. And, um, uh, you know, something that was in the CMHC report was looking at what is available to people in different income bands. So the lowest earning quintile of people under 25,000, only 0.2% of apartments are actually affordable to them if you think that you should pay rent that's no more than 30% of your income. And for people making less than 47000 which represents about 40% of people in the area, only 23 or 27, I think, percent right. of the apartments would be affordable to them. So, um, you know, the cheapest apartments, still very low vacancy rate, um, still, um, a lot of them not affordable to people, you know, making less money. I've st- I've noticed though, still a lot of for rent signs out there, and that was something you didn't mm-hmm. see the last couple of years. Oh yeah, when I tweeted out yesterday that I was looking for stories, I had a number of people from the West End say, you know, rents are going down in my building. Someone in Strathcona said. <clears throat> They were offering apartments at $75 less a month than I signed up for, you know, two years ago. Um, And I've had so many people in the West End tell me they're seeing for rent signs on buildings they had never seen, Uh, you know, those kinds of signs before. It was always, you know, go away, we're full. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not the case anymore. Francis, thank you. 
Thanks, Amy. All right, that's Frances Beulah. You can see her latest piece about this in the Globe and Mail newspaper today. Uh, and of course, fascinating situation now that renters find themselves in. I'd be curious to hear from people like Frances. Send me at cknw.com. Maybe people are thinking, oh, okay, maybe I'll look in that building now. I never noticed that they had a for rent sign finally for the first time. Some of them actually getting incentives from landlords to take an apartment. It's uh, definitely a different era for sure.